0: This was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing, you get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors. That business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. So this episode of Built to Sell Radio is a little bit different. Usually I ask the questions and in this case, I'm going to reverse the rules and I'm going to sit in the answering seat and answer your questions. We've gone out to our social media channels at a couple of events as well and asked sort of what are your big questions around building to sell, around exiting your business. And what I've got here is 10 questions I'm going to take you through. And I'm just going to give you my unvarnished answers to these 10 questions. We'll do five this week and five next week. And together, hopefully you'll find them interesting and another perspective. My answers may not be the right answers they're just simply my answers so take them for with a pinch of salt but here they are 10 questions that we get around exiting your company All right, this is part two in an episode around the questions that I get from entrepreneurs around building to sell. It's a little different. Usually I'm sitting in the seat that asks the questions, and this time you guys are asking the questions and I'm answering them. So I hope you find it interesting, as I said, on last week's episode, and you can check that out by going to build2sell.com and uh, find the podcast there. It'll be the last one, our most recent Uh, As I said last time, you know, these are my opinions. Uh, Usually I ask the questions and try not to give a strong opinion of whether, you know, the entrepreneur took the right course or not. And in this case, I'm just going to give you my unvarnished opinion. You may agree with it. You may disagree with it. Uh, Please, you know, talk to your advisor about what's right for you. Just because this is my opinion doesn't make it right. So please do talk to whoever it is that you uh, rely on for advice uh, for as you as you start to answer some of these questions in your own mind. But I, I wanted to give you at least the benefit of my own, again, unvarnished opinion on what works and what doesn't. Okay, question number six in our list of top 10. Again, the first five we did last week, check that out at built sellcom Question number six. How do I ensure that I am not going to get taken advantage of during the due diligence phase of an acquisition? And I think, you know, what what happens most often and what we hear about most often, the nightmare scenario for a lot of entrepreneurs is that they get into a deal with a potential acquirer who really has no intention in buying your business. They give you a letter of intent. You sign it. You give up exclusivity, you give up, you a know, no shop clause, the ability to continue to negotiate, and they then spend the next two months really looking through your confidential information, your proprietary information, to the point where, in many cases, they may choose to bail on the acquisition, but walk away with a tremendous amount of knowledge, proprietary knowledge about your company. How do we deal with this? Well, clearly, you know there are ways in in your in your confidentiality agreement, your NDA that you'll be signing, likely a mutual NDA, so they agree not to disclose private statistics, private data, and you too agree to uh, not disclose anything private in your in early, usually in the negotiation process. So you're, so you're likely already under some sort of non-disclosure agreement, at least you, you should be, uh, in which case uh, there's some protection there. But but clearly we. We know that there's a difference between, you know, writing an article in the New York Times about all the data in your company and quietly just using the information they glean from the due diligence process without actually revealing it or, or contravening any sort of NDA. So it still doesn't really protect you in, in in every instance. I mean, one of the first things I would suggest you do is vet a, your potential acquirer. I mean, if they are a professional acquirer, they probably acquired other companies. They should be willing to let that you talk to some of the other CEOs they've acquired. Uh, you might want to ask them about the deals that fell apart and why uh, you would certainly be able to do a bit of background checking of your own to ensure that they are a legitimate buyer of companies, that they've bought businesses before. You know, if you look at at the, the, uh, the press release section of their website, which most large companies that you'd be dealing with have, go through the last sort of three years of press releases and you should see announcements of other acquisitions it's a red flag if you don't see any other acquisitions announced over the last three to five years that's a problem um acquirers really are they have acquisition as a strategy it's it's part of sort of the dna of the company they're they're active acquirers in most cases not always but most businesses that acquire companies that are legitimately interested in acquired companies have acquired companies in the past you're usually not their first rodeo and if you can't see any any other evidence of them buying a business that would be a red flag for sure the other thing you can do is hold back some proprietary data in the diligence process so you know as during due diligence there you're gonna you know i've heard it described as uh, in an unseemly way as the the entrepreneur's proctology exam it's not my words but i've heard it Were you know i've heard it <laughs> Said that way, so I'll restate that it's no fun. I mean, you're gonna have to come up with uh, you know documents you haven't looked at in years, right? Like let's you, know, you let's get a copy of your lease, every employment agreement uh, that you've ever had, every contract you've ever signed, um, you know, every license you have of every software. I mean, it goes on and on and on, and the list is just no fun to 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 populate. But you've got to go find these documents or or hire someone who will do it on your behalf. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to give them the Colonel Sanders, uh, you know, secret sauce, the 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 uh, the caramel secret. If you can, you know, take your mind back to those old chocolate bar ads. If you've got something that is truly proprietary, if you've got the Google algorithm, if you're Google, for example, not that they're going to be selling anytime soon, but if you had something that is truly a black box, that is truly proprietary, you don't necessarily have to show them that as part of due diligence. If you go back to episode number... um, I don't actually have the episode number. Yeah, actually, it's episode number 144. I'm looking at a note I made to prepare for this podcast, episode 144 with James Murphy, who who sold Visical. He provides a great example of how you can hold back some proprietary information. So, Visical, if you don't know it, is is a as a a formula, uh, a topical treatment for uh, for women who are suffering from baldness. Uh, You know, baldness among guys, I can speak to this firsthand, is a crappy deal. But uh, for women, it can be just it can be you know horrible, just just given social norms and so forth. Visical is a way uh, that's supposedly proven. I can't speak to this, the efficacy firsthand, but but certainly uh, James has built a a very successful company on the back of this proprietary formula of dealing with uh, female baldness or thinning hair. And as part of the diligence process, uh, as he describes in the episode, he did not share the formula. Uh, he assured them that there, the, the potential buyer, the buyer, which uh, was a Fortune 500 company, that there was a formula, that they would receive access to the formula once the share purchase agreement had been consummated. But they weren't going to see the formula, what the different chemicals and compounds were that made the baldness solution they weren't going to get that until they actually handed over the check and they and the actual share purchase agreement was signed and so you know, as part of diligence, you may be asked to uh, reveal something that you're just not comfortable revealing. If it's basic stuff like financial information, then clearly you're going to have to come clean on on all that, and you should come clean on all that because the uh, it can it can open you up to legal uh, problems if you're in any way trying to to uh, to to hide or uh, or or not be totally forthcoming. Uh, but you don't necessarily have to give them the keys to the kingdom, the caramel secret, in VisiCal's case, the, the, the compound of the formula for the baldness formula. Uh, you, you don't have to until they actually uh, send you a check. By the way, VisiCal was sold for 150 million euros, so not a bad little exit for James Murphy, episode 144. Okay. Another question we get from time to time is if you could only hire one C-level executive, who would you hire? A chief financial officer, a chief marketing officer, chief revenue officer, chief product officer, whatever. Um, this is a question we get a lot because everybody will tell you that, well, you need a management team, you know, to sell your business. Even my point in episode one or uh, you know, point number one in, in, uh, in this two part series was you need a management team at the, uh, at the negotiation table. But a lot of entrepreneurs, frankly, can't afford a full you know, C-suite level of executives. Who would you be most likely to bring on? And I think my answer would be a second in command. A second in command, a general manager, if you will, is is someone who really runs the day-to-day operations of your company and choreographs the, the various different roles within your business. And, and I think that's probably, you know, absent of being able to hire a full management team, probably the, the, the best hire you could make if your goal is to uh, is to exit your business. Because again, when you go to sell your company, it can be so uh odd for a lot of entrepreneurs to even contemplate but for you it's the finish line right it's it's uh it's the it's the end of a lifelong journey like likely of building a company it can be decades multiple decades of of your life and it's really hard after after running a company for decades not to become a little myopic uh, to start to think about your own world a little bit too much uh but and that's only natural i've done it myself for sure the the opposite though is that when the acquirer comes in they are going to really be looking at the starting line of a journey so they're going to be trying to understand how does this business go from whatever you've taken it to to 10 times bigger than that and their first and biggest fear is going to be that you personally check out as soon as the check clears uh whether or not you physically leave, uh, whether you agree to an earnout out or not, you're likely to be less effective with all that money in the bank than you were before. That doesn't always happen, uh, but it's just human nature that once you have your basic, you know, Maslow's Law, once you have your basic needs met... Um, you, you become interested in, in sort of a higher level of fulfillment. And it may decrease your motivation. It may distract. You may be interested in other things. Uh, you may want to travel more. You may want to completely have a life-changing experience, in which case all of those things are detrimental to the buyer. And so for them, they're going to want to know do we have someone at the senior level who we can really put in place to run this company? And frankly, most acquirers do not have that person on their staff. If you're going to get hired by uh, or acquired by a private equity group, they don't have managers that they can kind of parachute into your company. They're looking for you to run their business after they make that investment in a minority or majority recapitalization. Likewise, strategic acquirers, big companies, uh, usually don't have uh, you know a whole group of executives they can and bring in and parachute in and give them yet another uh, job to do, another mandate to fulfill. In other words, they're going to want you either you or someone on your team to really take responsibility for the day-to-day running of your company. And that's where, if you're looking to sell your company, being able to merchandise a 2IC, a second-in-command, and say, hey, this individual is a, is really running the business day-to-day, that gives them uh, you know, a lot more confidence. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is Damien James. Damien uh, was episode 135. He built a company called Dimple, D I M. Ple uh, sold it for thirteen point four million dollars. A tremendous exit for Damien. One of his secrets to success and what he attributes to to being. the the most important sort of decision he made, uh, was hiring a 2IC, was hiring a second in command. He brought in someone to run the day-to-day operation of the business. He got to the point where he was spending less than a day a week in the company, yet the company was continuing to grow and meet its financial targets. So when he sold the business, he rightly made the case that, hey, you don't need me. Who you really want is is my president. Uh, He's the person running the company. And so Damien was able to get out uh, of his business without a lot of strings uh, because he was able to merchandise his his second-in-command. So I think for that reason, if it were me, I would likely uh, make you know that one senior hire be a second in command or a, you know a general manager to be your lieutenant. One of the things that you you might be surprised about or you may have contemplated is what about a chief financial officer? Usually, sometimes not always, but oftentimes a weakness for uh, you know true entrepreneurs is is their uh, you know their ideas people, their maybe sales and marketing people or product people, but but actually counting the numbers and being a, a chief financial officer is, is generally not their either interest or experience and so it can lead a lot of entrepreneurs to think maybe a cfo is the right hire i would caution there uh, only because when if and when you get acquired you're likely going to get acquired with someone who has a chief financial officer already Uh, usually they're going to be a larger company with more experience and 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 probably don't need another chief financial officer. So when you show up at the negotiation table with you and your chief financial officer, when they look across the table at your CFO, they're probably not looking at someone they want to keep. They're probably looking at someone that, frankly, they're going to let go uh, at some point in the future. And so that's just another liability for the acquirer. It's another severance payment they're going to have to pay, another mess they're going to have to clean up. And so for that reason, I I don't think a full-time CFO is the one person I would hire. I would instead use a fractional CFO if you could, a contract CFO if you don't need someone full-time, someone who could really help you professionalize your books, bring you to the the negotiation table but not have that full-time sort of severance that that, that you're going to have to deal with or the buyer's going to have to deal with i'd rather a second in command that's willing to stay on after your business is sold another question in our list of 10 questions is how do i get the interest of a fortune 500 company to buy my business um you know i I think it's a lot of uh, a lot of times we we dream about uh, frankly as entrepreneurs and i I'm happy to sort of admit that this is something i've thought about uh, we dream about being acquired by big companies um, you know if we're a sports apparel company, we dream about Nike coming along and buying a business if we're uh uh, you know, if you're a car company, maybe you you dream about General Motors coming along to buy your business or Tesla coming along to buy your business. If you're a computer IT, maybe you think about Google or Apple coming along to buy your business. I think it's a, it's a very natural thing to dream about and aspire to. Having said that, there is something M&A professionals call the 5 to 20 rule. And the 5 to 20 rule is a a rule of thumb. It is not a rule written in stone, but it it is a rule of thumb which says that, on average, in general, most acquirers will be between five and 20 times the size of the company they are acquiring. And so you can imagine, okay, let's imagine that you've got a a company that's generating a million dollars in revenue today. Your likely most natural acquire for your business is probably a business generating between five and 20 million in annual sales. Why is that the case? Well, for... A $3 million business to buy a $1 million business, it's it's really a, a very high risk venture for the $3 million business. If that doesn't go well, uh, it's likely the $3 million business is going out of business. Uh, likewise, if you're a $50 million business, you're probably not gonna be interested in buying a $1 million business because the costs of acquiring the $1 million business are virtually identical to buying a much larger business except they're they're spread out now in a very small acquisition so you've got a deal team of lawyers corporate development people uh who are going to charge you a flat fee to acquire that company and the 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 cost of acquisition is going to represent a, a prohibitively high percentage of the the overall value of the deal. Um, so you wouldn't spend, for example, four or five hundred thousand dollars to buy a company with only a million dollars in revenue. It just the frictional costs are just too high. In addition to frictional costs, you're also not going to move the needle if you're a million dollar company and 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 you're looking to get acquired by a fifty million dollar company, by by example. You're really not going to be that meaningful to the fifty million dollar company. So you'd have to be highly, highly strategic. And again, that's somewhat rare. And so for that reason, the five to twenty rule tends to hold true. Again, it's a rule of thumb, not a rule. we could we could all point to examples where the five to twenty rule is is not seen in effect. But I think if you start to comb through uh, closed deals, and one of the fun uh, places to do that, by the way, if you're if you're interested, uh, is the New York Times does, uh, a little section um called deal book. And, and that's a great place to look at consummated deals and 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 just kind of keep your eye on the, uh, the M&A world if you're interested, in particular, the M&A world in the United States. But in any case, the 5 to 20 rule. And so if to go back to the question, how do I get the attention of a Fortune 500 company? One of the things I would caution you about is that it's unlikely that you will get the attention of a, of a Fortune 500 company unless you are a very large company, unless you're, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. It's unlikely, that a Fortune 500 company is going to be interested. doesn't, again, always hold true, but there are some fundamental reasons that Fortune 500 companies don't buy very, very small companies. Um That being said, if you do have a relatively large company, one of the things I can suggest is really running it like it's a public or Fortune 500 company, even though you have the luxury of being a privately held company. And I did an episode with a guy named Jay Stanfield, who founded a company called Blinds.com. This is, as the name suggests, you buy window blinds and door blinds uh, from a website. And Blinds.com was acquired by Home Depot. This was a, a company generating more than $100 million in annual revenue. And one of the things Jay told me in the episode is that from a very early stage of the company, they started running the business like it was a publicly traded company. They had a quarterly meeting where they did a full shareholders download. They did a full presentation. All the key C-level managers were forced to come to a, a a quarterly meeting where they were, you know, to present their numbers from the quarter behind, their future goals for the quarter ahead. The CFO of Blinds.com would give a readout of uh, of their revenues, their profits, and 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 their plans and budgets for the quarter ahead. And it was really sort of handled as a very formal exercise, even though Jay was the majority shareholder and, and in no way forced to or required to do this. He wasn't a public company; there wasn't any disclosure requirements, uh, but he. He wanted to do it because uh, he wanted that that rigor of running a, a professional company. And so Home Depot, uh, when they bought the company, were were really impressed with just the rigor and the professionalism of the business, even though they were a, you know, relatively, in in, con- in the context of Home Depot, uh, a relatively small company, even though Blinds.com was generating more than $100 million in revenue at the time. That's episode, if you're interested, 100 and eight okay another uh, question here comes in and this is a, <clears throat> a pretty common question we get which is you know how do you bridge the gap between what an acquirer is willing to spend for your company and what a uh, what you as the founder, entrepreneur want for your company. And and it's a common refrain, right? As founders, not surprisingly, you know, you put your blood, sweat and tears into a company, you want to be paid for it. And, and in many cases, we're accused as founders of having sort of outlandish, totally out of touch sort of ideas about what our companies are worth. Um, and of course, if you're on the buy side, then your job is obviously to buy the business for as little as you possibly can. And so in the middle, you, there is obviously, in many cases, a big gap. And so clearly, one of the strategies that a lot of acquirers use in this case is they'll use an earnout. And we've talked about earnout before in episode one of the series, where in essentially, you are signing up for a set of goals in the future, and you're putting a portion of your your economic consideration for selling your company at risk, and, and you'll only get that uh, additional tranche of money if you're successfully able to hit the earnout goals. And that's, way, that's a way a lot of acquirers will try to to, to get you to bite on an acquisition offer. Now, the challenge, of course, with 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 earnouts are there. Are, there are many of them. We could do a whole episode on, on the challenges behind earnouts. But some of the common ones uh, are that you know it becomes very difficult to achieve your earnout. Um, the company that acquires you either consciously or unconsciously make it may make it very difficult for you to achieve your earnout. They may put unnecessary expenses on your profit and loss statement. Uh, they may have sort of uh, you know shared services agreements with all their divisions, and suddenly you, you're, you see, uh, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars expenses you, you weren't used to seeing on your P&L, and yet you're supposed to hit uh, a profitability goal. You, you may have salespeople that you're trying to woo that, you know, hiring freezes, uh, budget, probably, I mean, there may be any number of problems that that inhibit your ability to hit an earnout. out. Uh, the second reason that earnouts can be fatal um, is that, you know, the acquirer Wants to integrate your company and they don't really want you to run the business as a separate division. And this again comes to mismax expectations. If you sign up for an earnout as a division of a big company, you're going to be highly motivated to achieve your goals. If the manager of the business really wants to integrate your company, they actually may want you to take decisions and enforce decisions that are counter to helping you hit your earnout goal. Um, For example, you know, you may say, look, our website generates 40% of our traffic they might say shut your website down we're gonna we're gonna put your products from your website as products on our you know major mothership website well that might be the right decision to take for integration purposes uh, we're going to shut down your brand because our brand is more powerful. Again, that might be the right thing to do if the goal is to integrate your company, but it may thwart your ability to hit your earnout. So, earnouts can be problematic. Not only that, if you think about your role as an entrepreneur, I mean, chances are you're probably wired to run a company. You're probably not wired to be a you know a middle manager in a in a big company. And uh, and for that reason, sometimes being in an earnout situation can be. Just emotionally draining for you as a as a founder, and so lots of lots of reasons that earnouts uh, may be used to try to bridge the gap between what you want and what they're willing to pay. But for those reasons, they can they can be problematic and and, and perhaps something you don't want to uh, to to go after or use. L- let me be clear: you will likely have to agree to some form of transition period, some form of earnout. Uh, your your goal, I think, is to ensure that the proportion of your deal, uh, sign you know, attributed to an earnout is 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 as low as possible. And that you're very comfortable that, that if that earnout doesn't happen, you're still walking away with enough money to feel good about the deal another approach to 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 bridging the gap is is the adjustments phase of of dealing with your profit and loss statement so when you go to sell your company a good mergers and acquisitions professional or a good business broker is going to go through a process of adjusting your EBITDA your profitability essentially and adjustments are are done to to try to reflect your profit and loss statement um, in in a way that will be true under the once the business is in the hands of an acquirer and so what you're trying to look for is the true Profitability of the business once you account for anything that wouldn't necessarily be necessary to spend on or any revenue you would necessarily get once the business is in someone else's hands, and so this is not, if done correctly and and truthfully, this is not uh, illegal or 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 in any way devious. The adjustment phase is is a completely legitimate way for you to express your profit and loss in in a way that would would really hold true in if your company was was really a division of someone else's business. So the classic things that would be dealt with in, in an adjustment phase would be, let's say, for example, you're running your car through your company. And for whatever reason, you've decided that you're going to have your company pay for your car. Yet, if you were the division of another business, that company is unlikely to have to give you a company car well then you could strip out the benefit essentially uh, of that company car essentially you, the cost associated with that company car and boy lift up your profitability by the amount of money you've been spending on that car each month or each year Likewise, you may be paying yourself a below market rate salary. Uh, Let's imagine, for example, the market rate for your set of skills. If you were to go find a job tomorrow, you might earn, let's imagine, hypothetically, $200,000 a year. Yet, in your company, you're only being paid $120,000 a year, let's just say again for Hypothetical case. Well, that's an $80,000 difference between your market rate and the um, you know, what you've been paying. So in which case, the acquirer might argue, oh, hold on a second, we, we've gotta true this up and, and express your profitability uh, as if you were paying yourself $200,000 a year because that's what we're gonna have to pay to bring in a general manager to run your company after you leave. And so adjustments can work both ways. You as the entrepreneur, obviously, you want to increase your profitability by reducing expenses that you really wouldn't incur would not incur if you were a division of another another business this adjustments process can be a way to really inflate your profitability and what you might find is that acquirers can get their heads around spending more for their bit for your business if they look at your profitability look at your adjusted profitability um, uh, rather than your your sort of reported profitability, and so for example, a lot of acquirers uh, will have a, you know a, a stated uh, you know agreement in the, at their at the board level uh, that they you know they are not going to pay any more than five times earnings for a company. Just philosophically, you know they're value investors and they're they're never going to pay you know five times more than five times for your company. And you may look at five times on your existing profit. Uh, of your existing profits and say, well, that's not enough for me. But you may find that once you look at 5x on your adjusted profitability, especially if there are a lot of adjustments that can be made, then the actual number is a number that you'd be happy with. There is arguably, I think it is the most uh, shared episode of Built to Sell Radio in the history of our show is episode 97. It's with a guy named Ari Ackerman who sold Bunk One. And it's again, it's the most shared episode we've ever done. Um, and it's really the, the kind of core of the episode is, is the discussion around Ari and how uh, working with his m professional, they worked out a set of adjustments that uh, enabled an acquisition Position to happen when privacy, previously it wasn't possible because the buyer uh, had a, a maximum threshold on a multiple of earnings they were allowed to, to spend. Their board had approved. And so Ari, instead of arguing about the value of his company and about why they should spend more, he said, let me just change the way my profitability looks by going through the adjustment process, thereby increasing the profitability. They The acquirer stuck with the same multiple, but ultimately the aggregate price went up to a point where Ari was super happy with the deal, again, because um, he'd gone through the adjustment process. So that's another way you can uh, sort of bridge the gap between buyer and seller. Last question is related to one we tackled earlier in uh, in the first part of this two-part series on questions that we get, which is, and, and this part of the question is, how much more will a strategic acquirer pay than a financial acquirer? Uh, if you want to go back and listen to episode one, uh, you can you can uh, listen to the, the discussion uh, that we had around strategic acquirers. I think it was uh, point number four should be at about the 30-minute mark and and uh, and Steve Murch's exit of uh, of uh, a vacation spot. If you're interested in the kind of definition, I'm not going to redo the definition here, but I will address how much more your likely to get from your business from a strategic acquirer um, because it can vary dramatically. So again, the financial buyer is buying your future stream of profit. They're trying to get a return on investment and it puts a hard cap on the value of your business. They're going to look at that future stream of profit you're going to generate and they're going to discount it back into today's value of today's dollars using something called a DSF, dcf calculation discounted cash flow calculation uh and you can google that if you if you're interested in knowing how to do it but they're basically going to discount back into today's dollars what your business is worth to them today uh to uh, to try to figure out that what that future stream of profit is worth and that puts a hard limit on the value of your business um and so you're gonna see from financial buyers, m- in most cases, the range of offers are going to be relatively minor. Like the difference if you had three private equity companies bid for your business, those the range of those offers usually, not always, but usually is going to be relatively small uh, because they're using the same calculator. They're using essentially, in many cases, the same investment thresholds. The people that invest in the private equity groups are looking for roughly the same uh, return on investment for their investment so uh, in many cases, the range is relatively moderate. That's not necessarily true when you look at the range of offers from a group of strategic acquirers. Because again, the definition of a strategic is that they're valuing their company, your company, at least in part, onto what it's worth in their hands. And depending on who the acquirer is, that number could be dramatically different. Um One of my favorite episodes uh, of Built Cell Radio was with a woman named Stephanie Breedlove. It's episode 74 if you want to check it out. Uh, But Stephanie Breedlove was... um, Started a company in the payroll space. She was she was doing payroll for nannies, and uh, this is kind of a again a quiet little corner of the universe where uh, none of the big providers, ADP and Paychex, wanted to do payroll for nannies. So Stephanie started a company doing just that, payroll for nannies. She built it up to ten thousand customers so 10,000 different families she was doing payroll for she had nine million dollars in annual revenue so you know like a good business took her 25 years to get there hundred percent owner her and her husband so you know not a fantastic uh, growth rate but a, but a steady growth rate but but you know a solid business nine million dollars in, in revenue she sold the business unbelievably for 54 million dollars again that, that is a just an incredible multiple that almost is nonsensical it 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 sort of uh, blows apart any valuation model any any sort of realistic view of what a 9 million dollar business is worth and so you're probably asking so how how on earth did did this happen well she approached care.com care.com if you don't know is like the angie's list of acquirers excuse me of of um of care providers, so if if you're looking for a, a babysitter or an elder care worker or a nanny in your local city, you can go to Angie, uh, go to um, Care.com. Plug in your zip code or your postal code, and it will give you a a list of rated nannies or care providers where where real people have rated their care provider on a scale of one to five, uh, and and it can give you confidence as a person who need, needs to hire you know a babysitter or a nanny that this person has been peer reviewed et cetera. Well, at the time of the acquisition, at the time Stephanie Breedlove approached Care.com, they had seven million subscribers, 7 million people looking to pay nannies and, and, and be aware of, uh, you know, who the elder care workers are in their local markets, et cetera. Well, Stephanie Breedlove had just 10,000 customers. So she went to care and said, hey, guys, if, if we can sell 1%, which isn't a t- too high a bar to reach, if we can sell just 1% of your 7 million subscribers. Well that's 70,000 customers for my payroll service. Again, I built this 9 million dollar company on the backs of just 10,000 customers. So 70,000 is a company 7 times the size and that should be just the, the you know scratching the surface of what we can do. What if we can what if we can cross sell 5% of your 7 million subscribers or or even if we dare to dream 10%? You can see how care.com was able to justify a huge acquisition multiple because in their hands with these 7 million subscribers, Breedlove's company was extremely valuable to them. And that, again, is, is the secret, if you will, to the strategic acquisition where they're looking at your business through the lens of what it's worth in their hands. Um, doesn't happen very often. They are more the exception than the rule. We see a lot more financial transactions than we do strategic uh, acquisitions. But when they do happen, they can, they can result in, in much more uh, uh, exciting multiples for entrepreneurs listeners um. Uh, because of what is, is really being the math that's really being done uh, by the acquirer in particular around what it's worth in their hands. Hey, listen, I hope this was a fun uh, episode for you to listen to. As I said on the outset, I really do hope you take my own opinion with a uh, the giant grain of salt. Talk to your certified value builder, talk to your advisor about what's right for you and your circumstances. They're going to be in a much better position to provide you with specific advice than I would be uh, not knowing your, company um but i only think it's fair for every once in a while to pull up and tell you what i really think about some of these questions and take my again opinion for a grain of salt it's just based on my own experience uh and i'm sure you've got your own experience to share as well so with that if you have additional questions please reach out i'm at john warlow on twitter w-a-r-r-i until next time thanks for listening